last week we talked about the amazing story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And that moment when Peter is about to sink into the Sea of Galilee and he reaches his hand out and says, save me. This is the most basic prayer that you can have. Save me. And Jesus reaches out. And I think that little story is just a picture of all of our story with Jesus. At some point in our lives, we realize the need that we have for the grace and mercy of God, and we just cry out, Jesus, would you save me? And he reaches out, and he does. That story took place right after the feeding of the 5,000-plus people. And so one thing, it's hard for us to get a grasp onto timelines sometime, but all of this is happening in like one day, like two days total, from the feeding of the 5,000 to Jesus walking water. That's the same day. And then this next story is the very next morning. And so upcoming, we have this story of those same people, the 5,000 that were just fed. They come and pursue Jesus to the other side to continue to try to get what they want from Jesus. And we're going to see this in this story. We have some long sections of text today, so bear with me. If you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 6. Verse 22 is where we're going to start today. We're going to try to get through the end of this chapter, which is a lot. But John 6, 22, and remember this is the next day after the feeding of the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Okay, that was a lot. Let's jump into it. For context, like I said, this is the next day, right after he's already fed them. The crowds that Jesus fed realized the next morning that Jesus is no longer there. They saw the 12 disciples get in the boat and go, and they saw Jesus head up the mountain to pray. And so they wake up thinking Jesus is still going to be there, and he's gone. They don't know that he went for a nice little stroll on the Sea of Galilee. But they somehow realize that he's gone across from the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed up to the northern tip to Capernaum. And so they go seeking Jesus. And I want you to notice that it says in here that they're seeking Jesus. When they find Jesus, which we find out later, interestingly, verse 59, we haven't got to, we find out Jesus is over in Capernaum and he's preaching in synagogue. He's teaching the church in Capernaum. They find him there and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're a little confused. I love this. They know that the disciples left, but they knew that he was still there. They don't understand what's going on. But I I love this. Jesus doesn't even answer that question. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then in verse 26, instead of answering their question, when did you come here? He answers why they came there. They say, why are you here? And he says, let me tell you why you're here. And he tells them, in a pretty blunt way, he says, truly, truly, which in the original language is also, amen, amen. It is so, it is so. He's saying, listen to what I'm about to say. He says, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He calls them out immediately. He says, you aren't here to seek me because you saw miraculous things or because you believe that I am the Messiah. You're here because you got your stomachs filled. You're here because I gave you free food. They want more bread. They want more miracles. They want more of that cool stuff that they saw from him. They want more of that guy that they wanted to turn into a political king because they're just excited about that. Even right after seeing Jesus perform a miracle that cannot be explained through anything other than the miraculous work of God, they are still thinking about the material things in life. They're thinking about what they can get from him. Jesus shows them the very power of God, and they're worried about a free meal ticket. Have we ever been guilty of the same thing? God does something miraculous, and we're just like, what can I get out of this? People do this. They're attracted to Jesus, but not because he is the Messiah who has come to save them from sin and death, but because he gave them free food. But they had come across the whole Sea of Galilee. So they, they are seeking him. They're pursuing him. But they're pursuing him for their own gain. And so he says to them, and notice this verse. It's so good. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says, you're trying to work for food that you, I mean, honestly, probably thinking like you have a job. You could just go work for your food. He says, you're trying to work for free food, which makes no sense. And besides, I will give you 
this food. I will give you this bread. You don't have to work for it. It is not earned through your works. He's saying they're putting all this effort into finding the food that will perish, but he says you should be focused on finding the spiritual bread that will last forever. And of course, the crowds miss the whole idea. And they first, the first question they ask after that is, what must we do? He just said, I will give it to you. They're like, what do we have to do? And I think this is a massive thing in our lives, even today. We have a hard time understanding the idea of the free grace and mercy of God. I think a lot of people, especially men, not to sound sex, but men really have a hard time with like, I will earn everything I get. I don't accept any free meals. And Jesus says, well, here's the thing, you can't earn it. There is no way to earn it. And so either you accept it as a free gift or you can't have it. You can't just do something. They're trying to figure out what they can earn from Jesus, which is hilarious because the whole reason they came is because they got a free gift. Now they want more free gifts, but they're like, what do I have to do? He says, you can't do it. He says, this is the work of God. Notice this. We, we skip over this. This is the work of God. God did the work. And then he gives it as a gift. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. It's God's work that we believe in God, not our own work. Even the faith that you have is a gift from God. Jesus makes this amazing offer to them that all they need to do is believe and they will be given this gift of spiritual sustenance that will last forever. He says it's not about doing something, it's about believing in someone, in Jesus. This is always something, again, that we're running into as humans is we think if we can just be good enough, if we can just earn enough favor with the Lord, then he will love us. He will give us this gift. We keep trying to earn it, but the problem is who determines what good enough is? Have you ever thought about that? When you talk to somebody and they say, I'm basically a good person, says who? Who's the standard bearer for that? If it's you and me, we're in trouble. Because our standard of what good enough is, is nowhere near God's standard. And if it's God's standard, which is perfection, we're in even bigger trouble. So who gets to decide what is good enough? And as a side note, if you could be good enough... If you could earn the love of God, then why did Jesus die on the cross? What was the point of that? If you think, I can just be good enough for God to love me, then you're saying the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was unnecessary. But it wasn't, because we can't be good enough. I've, had that, I've said this a bunch of times, but isn't it great when you talk to somebody and say, I'm basically a good person. What they mean is, I've never murdered somebody. That's always like... What do you mean you're a good person? I've never killed anybody. That's the standard? That's the whole standard? Like you don't kill, you're good, you're going to heaven? Right? No, the standard is the perfection of God. And so if we're going to have that, and we can't earn it, then the only way that we can have it is if it's a gift from God. It's the only way. 
what do they react to that? This is, this is just people, man, right? God, Jesus offers them this amazing gift. He's already shown who he is. And how do they answer? Give us a sign. They want proof. They want Jesus to do the same thing that Moses did in the Old Testament where manna came down from heaven and fed them every single day for 40 years. That's what they want. You may remember, side note again, there's another verse that we've talked about before where the Pharisees ask for a sign and Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But even then, he says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. He says, I'm going to die I'm going to be dead for three days and I'm going to come back. How's that for a sign? I'll beat the power of death. Besides all that, the crowd has just seen a sign. Remember, less than 20, like the last meal that they just ate was a miracle. It's like breakfast time and they're like, I'm hungry again. I want more food. And they've already forgotten that yesterday at dinner, Jesus provided a miraculous meal that came from five loaves and two fish and fed 10, 12, 15,000 people. But the very, time, the very next time they're hungry, and isn't this just how we are? Do it again. Do it again, Jesus. They're trying to manipulate Jesus into giving them what their flesh wants by spiritualizing their language. This is one of the most frustrating things. I, I feel like, maybe not to God, but to me. <laughs> When people try to get what they want from God and they just use manipulative spiritual language to try to get it. So frustrating. How hilarious is that people think you can manipulate the creator of the universe. But Jesus corrects them. And he does so somewhat gently, which I applaud him for. He says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. Remember Moses? Moses is like, I can't even talk. And yet God uses him. They try to give Moses all of the credit for making manna come down from heaven. He says, it wasn't Moses, it was my father. He says, my father provides the bread. And so, again, kind of manipulative. They're like, that sounds great. Give us that always. We want that forever. And they're still stuck on this idea that they're just trying to fill their stomachs. They're still just trying to get what they can get from Jesus. They're not actually thinking about what they need. They're just thinking about what they want. Now Jesus really blows their minds. And we skip over this because we've read it a bunch of times if you spent time in church, but you got to understand how like mind-blowing this statement is. He looks at these people. They're talking about bread. They're talking about filling their stomachs. He looks at them and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of seven, if you read through the book of John by itself, seven I am statements where John is constantly telling us that Jesus is, through his own words, he is everything that we could possibly need. He says, you need sustenance, you need provision, I am all of that. I am the bread of life. This I am statement reminds me of earlier in John when he's talking to the woman at the well, right? He says, I am the living water, right? He's, she, she's still thinking about, I don't want to pull up water from the well anymore. I'm tired of this well thing. And he says, I can give you water that'll last forever. And she says, give it to me forever. And he says, I am the living water. 
So he's saying the same thing. He's trying to tell them, this isn't about bread that goes bad after a few days. We're talking about spiritual nourishment, spiritual provision that lasts forever. And he comes down from heaven to give it from God. And notice that line. He says he came down from heaven because the crowd sure notices that line. When he says, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven, they're like, what? And verse 40 wraps up this amazing claim. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus here blatantly tells the crowd, if you want eternal life, if you want eternal blessing, if you want the bread that will sustain you for all time, then the only way to get it is through belief and faith in me. That's an incredible statement. Especially for a crowd of people that aren't sure that they believe that yet. It's a massive statement that he makes. It's earth-shaking, really. And it causes quite the reaction in the crowds, which we'll read here. Another longer section, if you have your Bible open, John 6, verse 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone who, is, who has seen the Father, except for he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Okay, so he, he hits these ideas multiple times because they're so important. Immediately, as soon as he starts talking about this stuff, they start grumbling to themselves. Did you catch that? Like, how can you say you're from heaven? We know your mom and dad. You're Joseph and Mary's kid. You're James's brother. We know your sisters. And now you're saying you're from heaven? Jesus knows that they're grumbling, and he, so he says, nope, stop your grumbling. You're not going to understand this unless you get it from the Father. The Father has to call you. 
He has to help you to understand. And this is something that's so important for us to understand. We don't first pursue God. God first pursues us. And we respond to that call. He helps us to begin to understand these things, these truths that are beyond our comprehension. And we have to make the choice to follow him when we understand those things, but he first has to reveal himself in some way. And for many of those in the crowd, again, they're just, they're so physically minded, carnally minded, that all they're thinking about is where's my next meal? They don't even see that Jesus is talking about eternal things. We have to understand this for people in our lives sometimes, which is difficult. There's probably people in your life, like there is for me, that you want them so desperately to understand the love of Jesus. And they're just not ready yet. No matter how many times you get frustrated and say, why can't you see it? They're just not ready yet. And you have to just continue to pray, God, would you reveal yourself to them? And you continue to pray for them. You continue, if you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them or make the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But getting angry at somebody who doesn't see is ridiculous. It's like, I've said that before, getting angry at a blind person for not understanding how beautiful the sunset is. Their eyes aren't even opened yet. And so we just pray, we continue to pray, and we lean into that. Even while the people are grumbling, Jesus doubles down. I love this. Jesus doesn't shrink back from what he's saying. He goes harder, right? They're already upset because he said, I'm the bread of life, and I came from heaven. And it's almost like Jesus says, oh, you think that's something? Just wait. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, if you've grown up in the church, you understand communion. You're like, yeah, blood and blood and wine, I, I get it. But if you've never understood this before, and some guy says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You're, you're, what? What did you say? First off, he's claiming to be from heaven, which means he's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God, which is shocking all by itself, unless it's true. But then secondly, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which if they take him literally is cannibalism. And many of the early like Roman people thought that Christians were cannibals. Did you know that? Historically, they thought they were cannibals because they'd walk around being like, we're eating flesh and drinking blood. Like, uh, what? That's a weird little cult you got there. And on top of this, these people have lived by kosher laws their entire life. They live by kosher laws, which in kosher law, you cannot eat any meat that still has its blood in it, and you cannot drink blood from anything, from any animal. You don't drink blood. And so not only is it like just a crazy sounding thing to say, he's also saying, you know those kosher laws that you've lived your entire life believing are the law? Break that. Drink my blood. Now this is getting into some pretty deep theological waters, but I think it's important for us to understand is this whole idea of Jesus giving his blood. Is If you go back into the Old Testament, blood literally represent 
It's life. It is life. It is God giving you life. That is what blood represents. And so when he says don't drink the blood, when the kosher laws are don't drink the blood, he's saying you're taking life away. Right? If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, when Cain kills Abel, it, God says that Abel's blood was crying out to him from the ground. This representation of the very life force that God gives us, God is saying, you, you can't take that. That is life. But humanity falls into sin and they lose their connection with God. And so when Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he is offering his life to us. Saying the very force of life and this life that is connected to the Father, the one that you lost when you fell, I'm offering you that through my blood which will be sacrificed, which you then partake in. Again, deep theology stuff, but it's so good. He's literally saying, take my life because it's the only way that you can be reconnected to your Father. The crowds, just like some of the people today, are not catching on to what Jesus is really saying and they're kind of lost in confusion. And so we see their reaction continue from this. In verse 60, through the end of the chapter, one of the saddest verses in the Bible to me is is in here, verse 66. Uh, Verse 60 says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the Spirit? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh will not help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked after him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Did I just unplug my mic? No? Okay, good. Starts out by saying, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And actually in the original language, it's not saying who can listen, like literally who can hear it. It's saying who can accept it. This is a really hard thing that you're saying to us, Jesus. Who can accept what you're saying? And many of the people who had followed Jesus over the sea just can't accept these ideas. These disciples, which it's a little confusing here, he's talking about anybody who follows him. He's using the term disciple, but the 12 are separate. These people who literally followed him across the sea, they cannot accept what he's saying, that he is bread of life and that they must eat his flesh and drink their blood. They, they don't understand it. They don't grasp it. And Jesus' reaction to this, again, is fascinating because he does not back down. He goes even further. 
And I love this. He says, do you take offense at this? Literally saying, you offended, bro? Are you offended by that? What, what if you see me, you, you, you don't like the idea of me coming down to heaven? What about when you watch me go back? Will you understand then? You can only understand what the Holy Spirit makes clear to you. And as I said, one of the saddest verses in the Bible to me, which ironically is 666 of John. So many people, when they hear this message and they can't grasp it, they turn away and they no longer walk with God. They just couldn't accept these difficult things that Jesus has said to them. And this is something I really want to hit today because it is so important for us to grasp. Because it's a problem in our world. Jesus says difficult things. Do you understand that? Like, Jesus is offensive. That might feel weird for you if you've been walking with God your whole life, and you're like, well, that doesn't seem right. But he is. He's offensive. The Bible says he's a stumbling block to those who do not know. He's offensive to the world because he says, there is truth and there is lies. There is right and there is wrong. He says there are things that people do that they want to do, but they're sin. And they shouldn't be doing those things. And they're not living in the will of God if they do those things. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've been offended by Jesus. Many times. Because I'm like, God, this is what I want to do. And he says, nope. I'm offended by that. In my flesh. I'm offended when I want to do something. And I think of myself as the, the king of my own heart. And he says, who's the king of your heart? Who's the Lord of your life? I'm offended. Paul, when he was Saul, was offended that Jesus claimed to be God and that he could forgive people's sins and that his religious beliefs weren't the same as his. And we could go through all these stories biblically and in your lives where we'd say, Jesus offended me. Have you ever been offended by Jesus? It's okay. You can be offended by Jesus because here's the thing. None of us, not me, not you, not Saul, none of us get to be the standard by which truth is measured. Only he is. Only the one and only man who ever lived a perfect life, aligning perfectly with the will of God, gets to be the standard of what is right and wrong. And so when we are offended, we have this moment where we have to realize, like, okay, I'm offended. Am I offended because Jesus is wrong? Or am I offended because I'm wrong? Jesus doesn't have to justify himself. We have to justify ourselves and align ourselves with the will of God. And so we can be offended wrongfully. That's what our world doesn't seem to understand. You can be offended and be wrong. But he doesn't have to justify himself. He is God in flesh. And so there's these people who are offended, and so they leave. 
And then there's this just intimate moment with just his 12. Other people have left, and so he's got his 12 disciples. And he says, do you want to go as well? And in the original language, he, he knows that they don't, obviously. So he says, you know, something along the lines of like, you sure you guys don't want to go? But he knows they don't. But then Peter has this answer. I love this. I've told you guys I love Peter so much. Peter has these moments where he's like awesome and moments when he's just dumb. This is one of his good moments. Peter answers. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love the way this is worded. Where, where else would we go? He says, we, we know the truth. Like, once you know the truth, you can't go anywhere else. There's no other options. And then I, I love he says, we believed and came to know. First, belief. First, they had faith. And then through that faith, they realized, we know this is true. This is how we work. We want proof first. Do the miracle, Jesus. Dance for us. He says, no, believe, and you'll see the truth. You'll see the proof. They believe, and then they know that he is the Holy One, capitalized, Holy One of God, that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And so Peter's saying, like, we know who you are. And even when he says things that sound crazy, even to them, I think Peter was sitting there along with the rest crowd being like, what did he say? Eat his flesh and drink his blood? Peter's just as shocked by this. He's raised in the Jewish tradition. He's been kosher. Right? He's just as shocked. But they've gotten to the point where they know who he is. Do you know who Jesus is? Because once you know who he is, again, he does not have to justify himself or the things that he says that sound crazy, we have to align ourselves to him because we know who he is. Interestingly, the last couple verses kind of take this odd swing that John does sometimes. And Jesus says, and he said to the twelve, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? It almost seems like John just really doesn't like Judas and wants to get one little date, like, hey, you remember Judas? Yeah, Devil right? So he makes that statement. As we finish today, I want to step back one more time to talking about Jesus as the bread of life. Because it's such, this is the overarching piece of information. If you've checked out on me through this whole sermon, come back. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I love that he says that and not something like, I am the Cheesecake Factory's red velvet cheesecake of life. I say that because it's the best thing I've ever had in my mouth, ever. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the bread of life because Jesus is the daily sustenance of life. He's not just the dessert that you have once a week on Sunday and get your Jesus time in. He is the daily bread. So Jesus is telling us that he is our source for spiritual sustenance. Not just some experience that you have from time to time, like cheesecake, maybe more often than we should. Let's be real. 
but the daily sustenance. I know that many of you, like me, had a moment in your life. For me, it was summer camp, 1994, July 5th. And I had this moment where I came to understand who Jesus was and who I was to Jesus, and it changed my life forever. And it was a spiritual high, or what pastors call a mountaintop experience. Right? We have those, and those are great things, but those are not meant to be the sustenance of our life. It is a moment that starts something greater where we then rely on Jesus every day for everything that we need. We are called to a daily life of submitting our lives and to living in a way that God would call us to live. And not just for our own good, but for those outside of church walls or outside of the body of Christ walls who are watching and saying, is there something different? Does your life look differently? Are you full of more joy? Like, do you have purpose in your life that I'm lacking? All of those things are the things that we are relying on him every day. It's not just a spiritual high. It's not just a mountaintop experience. It is living every day saying, Jesus, just like his prayer in Matthew 5, you are my daily bread. I don't just need you to get through the worst times. I need you to get up in the morning. I need you to be with me in every relationship that I have, in every interaction that I have with other people. And so my question for us today is, is that the case? Is Jesus the bread of our lives? Or are we trusting in some other bread, like the bread that will go bad? Is the daily sustenance of your life, is it success in business or whatever it is? Is it education? Is it, I hope it's not this, is it social media likes? That little dopamine click that hits, and like, I feel good. Is that the bread of your life? Is it a relationship that you are relying on that other person to make you feel purpose and meaning? Or is the bread of life the daily sustenance, the daily purpose and reason and, and essence of your life that Jesus has given you life? And has called you to be a part of something far greater than yourself, the kingdom of God. My prayer this morning is that all of us would stop looking towards those things like the crowds were that will go bad, that will be wasted, and that we would start to find our daily bread, our purpose, and our meaning in the only one who can give us all of that and eternal blessing as well. Let's pray. Jesus, that is my prayer. Again, just that you would help us, all of us that know you and maybe some today that don't know you, that we would realize that the only true bread for life, sustenance, provision, whatever word, the, the reason that we are here is you. And that only you can provide us with that sustenance that gives us life every day, day after day. And help us, Lord, to stop living our lives just focused on filling our belly the next time. Or fulfilling the next the 
the next dopamine hit that makes us feel good or whatever it is, God, would you help us to live every day knowing that we have this blessing only because you have given it to us and that we have this amazing blessing of now being a part of what you're doing in the world to share the gospel with the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.